What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Monkey Finance Podcast. Today, we're going to be recording episode 69. It's going to be a Q&A session. Um, I've left the community post open for a few weeks now, and you guys can ask me your money, investing, life topics, anything you want answered. And I was going to dedicate a 30, 45-minute podcast episode to answering your questions. So quite a few of you left those questions. So we're going to go ahead and jump into the Q&A. Um, the first one came from Adam K. So big shout out to you, Adam. Thanks so much for your question. And his question is, should you transfer your old employer 401k to a Roth IRA? And how would you go about doing it? So the first part of your question, the answer is a resounding yes, you should. Uh, anytime you leave your pre previous employer, um, I highly recommend that you transfer your old 401k one of two different ways, either to a personal individual IRA that you own or your new employer's 401k. Now, the preference I go with is to transferring it to an IRA. And the biggest difference is control. An IRA is a individual retirement account, meaning it's not tied to any employer and you have the option to self-direct your IRA, meaning you can have one with Fidelity or Vanguard or Schwab, any of the big uh, brokerage houses, and you can pick your own investments. You could set your own asset allocations. You have full control. The biggest difference in transferring uh, to a new employer's 401k is you're limited to whatever that new employer's 401k offerings are. So maybe they don't have index funds. Maybe they don't have a, a broad uh, base uh, of funds you can select from to match the strategy that you're trying to seek. The other issue is fees. Um, there's usually admin fees associated with employer 401ks now. Generally, over the years, these have gone down quite a bit, and they're anywhere between two to five basis points uh, now. But keeping it with an old employer could incur more fees. Not always the case, but it could. So that's why you never want to leave it with the old employer. The other thing is sometimes you might forget about it, right? You switch a few jobs and you don't five, 10 years from now, you don't, you might not even recall um, if you had a 401k with that employer and then you're like, oh, well, what's going on with my 401k? So you want to be more on top of it. So I'd recommend transferring it to your own IRA. Now, whether it's a Roth or traditional is going to depend on the type of 401k you have. So if you had a traditional 401k without an after-tax Roth option, then you can only transfer it to a traditional IRA. Uh, from that, you could do a Roth conversion and uh, and basically cash out that, or the custodian will do this for you. They'll cash out that IRA and move it over to a Roth IRA, and then you would be responsible for the taxes. You never want to um, pay the taxes out of your investments. You want to pay the taxes outside of your cash if you're going to do it, uh, it with your cash outside of that investment if you're going to do it with uh, into a Roth IRA. Now, how you do it is quite simple. Um, you want to do what's called a direct transfer. So this is going to be a two-step process. First thing is you need to have the matching IRA account at your own investment firm, whether it's Fidelity, Schwab, whoever. And then you're going to contact your employer and you're going to tell them you want to do a direct transfer. And you're going to give them the account number and all that information. 
A lot of them require a wet signature. I know the ones that I've done, they want me to actually physically sign the paperwork. Uh, might be different with yours, so that's something you have to sort out. But once you fill out that direct transfer form, it's really those two institutions talking to each other. You don't get the money. They're not cutting you a check. Um, if you go an indirect route, they will actually liquidate and cash out your 401k, send you the check, and then you have 60 days to deposit that check into your personal IRA. Otherwise, there's all kinds of fees and penalties. And that's the messy route because, you know, sometimes we forget. So the best way to do it is a direct transfer. All you have to do is have an IRA set up, whether it's traditional or Roth, matching whatever the type of account that you have in your 401k. And it's really that simple. So great question, Adam, and uh, best of luck in your uh, transfer there. Next question comes from Aram, and he wants to know, um, since value has outperformed growth year to date, but has underperformed growth since 2009, do you think that the coming decade value will continue outperforming growth? Um, it's definitely due to outperform, right? It, it's this, uh, doesn't happen every decade, but most decades they flip and flop but sometimes there's like a 15 or 17 year period where one is better than the other. Um, a good uh, time frame that comes to mind is the 70s and 80s was really the value decades. And then the, uh, the 90s uh, growth came on in the early 2000s, growth fell off again and value came back. Uh, and then in the 2010s, growth came back, right? So they play this back and forth game and it's uh, difficult to predict what will happen, but uh, there's a few metrics that I use to figure out what is the likely outcome of the next decade. I could be 100% wrong, but everything that I've looked at shows that it's uh, value. The gap between growth and value before uh, this market crash was very, very big. Um, going back to, I think it was October of 2020, the gap was at its biggest in, in the last 20 years. So, you know, there's been already a little bit of resurgence. We've seen year to date. Uh, a lot of value funds have either been barely negative or in the green, while a lot of growth funds have been down 30 plus percent, right? So that flip has happened. But what tends to happen is it doesn't just, it's not like one year value outperforms and then the next nine years, it doesn't. Uh, value continues to then outperform year over year until investors again start seeing value and growth, right? And then it flips. So yes, I do believe this is uh, definitely going to be the decade for value. I personally would be shocked if it's not, but I mean, stock market is an unpredictable beast. So of course, you know, anything can happen, but I just, I don't see that, you know, for 20 year period value underperforming growth, then where would be that value premium that you know we've we've studied so and heard so much about? The the reason the the value premium exists is because these are companies that are beaten up and out of favor. So over the long run, they're expected to pay a premium or to have better performance because people don't want to invest in them. Now the same th argument could be made that the growth companies of the 2010s and into the early uh, stage of 2020 might be the future value companies that will propel value to outperform. Um, it's, I've, I've looked at as small cap value funds mainly, but this happens in large cap value too, where companies go from being growth companies to value companies. And then they kind of have a resurgence and then they come back to life. 
have a good five or 10 year stretch. And then all of a sudden they're no longer value. Now they're overvalued. They're considered growth, right? So the pendulum swings both ways. Uh, but long answer short, yes, I do expect this to happen over the next 10 years and definitely would be shocked if it doesn't. But again, nothing surprises me when it comes to the stock market. Next question is from Stanley, the credit frog. Uh, this has got, we got like three questions in one. So we got a three for one Stanley shout out to you. Um, first question is how is it going with the new credit card? Um, and has it changed your perspective by using credit cards in the future? So the new credit card is, is a love hate relationship, right? So Stanley, you did a wonderful job in, uh, assisting me and coaching me through, on how to get this credit card. And I was very giddy and excited about the sign-on bonus, even when I got it. So much value in the card, right? And the 3% travel makes so much sense. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just came back from my 10-day uh, trip from California just uh, two days ago, and I managed to pay the hotel, the uh, car rental, the airline tickets, the baggage fees, all that stuff, uh, even the EV charging, all that was paid for with a credit card and it got me 3% cash back on top of uh, my phone bill and my internet bill uh, that I use a credit card for as well. And that's been great. Now, it hasn't really changed my perspective because I, I can feel my anxiety kind of uh, coming back and it, it has to do with um, seeing the balance grow on the card. It, it's a weird thing, but when I use my debit card, I use a two checking account system. So I don't have a, a debit card from my main checking account where all the income comes from, but I have a, a second checking account where I attach a debit card to that I keep always under 500 bucks. And then I spend that for the week and then next, the following week I add another 500. And as I'm spending that down, I see the balance getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it kind of, you know, when I start the week off with 500 bucks, I'm feeling good, feeling happy, feeling like I'm worth a million bucks. And then in the middle of the week, I might be down a couple of hundred bucks and all of a sudden uh, my spending gets a little bit more constricted and, and tighter and I kind of start thinking about the purchases. I still feel like with a credit card, I, I, wouldn't, I don't have that same feeling. And I've actually given it a test run while I was out in California for five days, Monday through Friday, I decided to try to use the credit card while I was out there for like the daily purchases. And of course we went out to eat, did some entertainment stuff and quickly the balance added up, you know, five, 600 bucks. And I'm like, well, I just went over, you know, my $500 limit that was setting on myself to spend a week. And it, 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 it happened so quickly and it, it gave me a lot of anxiety, made me very nervous. And I just put the card away and haven't used this since. Um, the other part of the question is, how does it feel using the credit card now versus a few years ago when you were in credit card debt? And that part, I guess I touched on a little bit, but it feels way, way more scarier now than when I was in debt. I think when I was in credit card debt, I was very oblivious to the fact that I was tacking on the debt and it having a five, $6,000 credit card balance really didn't register with me. It didn't phase me, uh, partially because... I had a higher income then to be able to pay it off. So it didn't, it was just kind of like, oh yeah, my credit card's at 6,000 this month and 50% of my paycheck's going to my credit card. So it was, it was kind of like that. Now 
it's it's very scary. I'm very well aware that I am like on the on the edge of falling over. Like I'm I've, I've especially when I started swiping it this past week, I was like, well, I'm hit my I hit my or over spent my limit and I just had to cut it off because I knew if I didn't it would be a thousand dollars by the time I came back and it just wasn't in the budget for me. So I guess I am a little bit more conscious, but I still caught myself overspending on it and it it just continues to be a problem for me. Something I, I just can't figure out. And I think um, while the intentions were good and I really wanted to try and do this, not just for the car rental, but for uh, future travel expenses, I'm going to go ahead and not use it again put it away and then the next time I'm going to use it is when I travel abroad internationally. I'll just put again once a month or every other month a, a fuel charge on there just to keep it active and in good standing, but I I still can't uh put myself up to using it um more than, you know, something like a a fuel purchase, something under 100 bucks a month, right? It just it it just scares me and I can't do it. So, uh great question. Thanks for that. Uh, next one is from Kevin P and Kevin is loading up this pot. This, I might as well call this the Kevin episode because Kevin's got three questions. Uh, shout out to you, Kevin, private member as well. Um, first question is when it comes time to add bonds, how would you change your uh, asset percentages? And then in parentheses, he says monkey four. Um, yeah, so I've, I think I've touched on this in a, in a previous podcast episode, uh, my plan is to start adding bonds. Either I'm going to start adding bonds at 40 and I'm going to go a percent a year into bonds from age 40. So meaning by the time I'm 45, I'll have 5% in bonds, 50, 10%, et cetera. Or I'm going to wait till I'm 50 and just add 10%. And then when I'm 55, 15, and then when I'm 60, um, 20%, and then eventually either be at an 80-20 or a 70-30 by the time I'm 70. I think 70-30 is probably where I'm leaning to, but we'll see. Um, and it will be the monkey four. The way I'm going to do it is I'm actually going to take away from total U.S. market. So as I begin to add the bonds, I will reduce the, the 60% weighting that I have in the total U.S. I'd like to eventually get that down to uh, 30%. So it would be 30% U.S., 30% total bond, that'll be 60% of the portfolio, and then a 20 in U.S. small value and a 20 in, in total international. Uh, the other part is where would you put them? So I'm a big believer. I, I've, I've heard this. I I got to give credit to, uh, uh, I don't know, it wasn't Paul Merriman. It was, um, what's his name? Tom Cock and... and, and uh, Don McDonald, they said, and this kind of opened my eyes, they think the best place to put bonds is in a traditional tax-deferred IRA account. And at first, you know, people say, well, you know, bonds shouldn't go in a taxable, right? We know that because bonds are going to be taxed at the ordinary rate. There is no, uh, there's no special preferred rate for bonds. So if you put them in a taxable, you'll pay whatever your income tax bracket is, right? So that's not good. But if you put them in a traditional IRA, you get to collect all of the income that they produce 
And once you're 59 and a half, you even get to use it. Um, but you get to shelter it in a tax deferred account. So if I do end up going with bonds, let's say at age 40, what I can essentially do is for the next 20 years, collect all that income from the bonds, um, but never pay taxes on it. Or I will eventually, but I just get to defer the taxes on it. Of course, once I then start to pull money from that traditional IRA, whether it's by choice or once I hit uh, 70 and a half, when I get hit with the RMD, then they come due at ordinary tax rates. The idea is at 70, let's, I, I probably won't touch this until they force me to with my RMD, but at 70 and a half, or it might be 71 and a half now, if they change the age limit, it might be 75 by the time in, in 30 years from now. But the idea is then I'll be able to manipulate my income enough, legally, of course, that uh, my ordinary income rate is going to be much lower and I would pay much uh, lower taxes on those bonds than if I say put them in a Roth. The reason I don't want to put them in a Roth is, yes, they will grow tax-free, but the opportunity cost of not having equities in my Roth means I'm giving up. Let's say if bonds average five percent and stocks average a ten percent, I'm giving up that five percent difference to save in the taxes, and that's just not worth it. So that's my plan. Um, I'm pretty convinced that's the route I'm going to go. Of course, you know, anything can change, but uh, great question there. Let me see the second hat, or you had another part of this question. Uh, where would you put them? A common refrain I hear is bonds go in tax advantage accounts, but that ignores the power of tax-free growth. Uh, bonds go in tax advantage accounts, but that ignores the power of tax-free growth. I'm not sure what that second part means. A common refrain I hear is that bonds go in tax advantage accounts, but that ignores the power of tax-free growth. So you're saying that you, you're, what your common answer you're hearing too is by tax advantage, meaning they go in a pre-tax, like a traditional IRA, but you're saying that it, it is ignoring the fact that if you put them in an after-tax, like a Roth, that you would have tax-free growth. Yeah, and I think I just touched on that by saying, well, you, you're if, if you're going with that logic, then you're ignoring the fact that the power of equities in tax-free growth is 10% versus the power of bonds in tax-free growth is is 5%. But great question. And you got a few other questions here. Um, next one is, I'll probably do the crypto one first. Um, what do you need to see from crypto slash Web3 project in order for you to invest in it? Um, unfortunately for me, uh, I don't think I there's anything I can see. Um, I think fundamentally for me, crypto is, is, is a flawed investment. And we've seen just the stuff that's happened with FTX. Uh, I'm not fully versed in everything that happened, but I've been kind of reading a few articles as it was happening while I was on vacation. And it just shows how fragile crypto markets are. Shows that it's very hard to trust a crypto custodian or an exchange to hold and buy your crypto on. I'm not smart enough to figure out cold storage wallets and all these things, but you know, even people that want to go that route, well, if you buy crypto on a cold storage and you're not trading it back and forth, what's going to drive the price of the crypto, right? The only reason the price of the crypto goes up is because you're selling it on the exchange and somebody else is buying it for more. So if you're, you know, collecting your Bitcoins or Ether coins and put them on a cold 
storage wallet and not trading them, then the price will just stay flat if everybody did that, right? So we clearly know that the price to go up, for the price to go up, these exchanges need to exist. But the other issue with these exchanges is uh, they're not very transparent. And I knew something was fishy with FTX because I'm a big baseball fan and they had the, um, I think this happened in 2020 where they had the umpires start wearing the FTX logo on the umpire's um, uniform, which in baseball for a very, very long time, I think since it's existent, they haven't allowed any kind of external uh, um, sponsorships on player uniforms. I mean, even the, the Nike sign was was more recent, but on player uniforms. But, you know, it was just a traditional thing in baseball. And when I saw that, I knew FTX had paid a pretty penny uh, to, to get on the umpire's uniform and be the official um, crypto exchange of, of Major League Baseball. And I asked myself, where did FTX get that money? Like, this was not a... And I, I'd never actually found out the details of the contract. I don't know if MLB even publicated uh, how much that was, but I'm sure it was um, high millions, if not close to a billion. I don't know how long the term was either, but my guess, 250 to 500 million if it was like a 10-year deal because every umpire uniform had it and all those, you know, televised games that were in front of people's faces. I mean, it was everywhere. And then when the whole debacle started happening with... um, uh, those uh, crypto exchanges that were failing a couple of months ago and FTX started picking them all up, I started asking myself, where is this money coming from? How is FTX a platform I've never heard of before um, until I saw them on a ML- MLB umpire's uniform, all of a sudden have all this money and now we see them go insolvent and people basically lose everything and it. It just it doesn't make me convinced that this is the way to go. And unless crypto can somehow produce something that is worth value outside of just the price changes on the exchange, I, I, I can't be convinced. I'm sure lots of great technology behind it, but again, that technology could be applied to other currencies that are already here. Why do I have to buy the ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar crypto coins that are out there? I don't, right? So for me, unfortunately, I, I, I don't see it ever and I don't think there's anything that I'll ever see uh, for me to invest in it. Um speculate in it, I might, um, especially as uh, I, I for somebody who's a crypto hater I, I tend to follow the news and the and the price quite a bit from a standpoint of uh, just trying to time the market. So I might, you know, if, again, I'm feeling confident, maybe throw $1,000 in when I see the price, you know, fall and, and hope to make some money in the short term, but more on a speculative basis. But as far as any kind of legitimate investment, I, I just don't see it. But good question. And then your last question, which I thought was your best question, and I actually had some time to think about it, uh, but Kevin asked, best recommendation for a book on finance or investing, in parentheses, author cannot be Bogle. And this one threw me for a loop at first. Um, 
you guys that listen to me know I'm I'm a Bogle hat at heart. Um, John Bogle and his investing philosophy really changed my investment approach and my personal investments. And I've um, going on three years now since I first p- picked up my Bogle book of which was the little book of common sense investing. Um, I've been following his philosophy, his word, uh, sort of as gospel. So the fact that I can't say any of his books is tough, but then I thought of a book that I've I've been recommending to, um, people that are new to investing that is very simple and actually gives real advice. And this book isn't sort of like, um, the Dave Ramsey advice, which in the Dave Ramsey advice, it's, you know, I have uh, mutual funds that average 12% a year, right? And then he doesn't say which ones they are. That to me is not very helpful for new investors. Um, but this book is The Simple Path to Wealth by JL Collins, who is also somebody who is uh, very fond of John Bogle. But he actually gives you advice, and he gives you a fund name to buy, and that's VTSAX. If you've heard the phrase VTSAX and chill, if you've heard anybody talking about uh, financial freedom or FIRE, financially independent, retire early, I think uh, JL Collins' name is synonymous with um, that movement and that community. And his book, The Simple Path to Wealth, is not a chapter I don't agree with. Um, from the debt part of not using debt and paying off debt to uh, the part about credit cards where if you use them responsibly, you're probably fine, but there's a very few people that could do that. And if you can't, then you shouldn't use them. To the fact that you should invest in low-cost index funds that are total, uh, not total market, but total U.S. is what he prefers. Um I agree with him to, I mean, if you're going to hold it for 50 years, probably doesn't matter whether you have or don't have international, um, probably going to do the same, but it's a very simple book. I think for, for people that, um, want to get introduced to investing, but don't have, don't want to have like their eyes gloss over when you start talking about investing kind of the way I sometimes talked about it in the past. Um, that's a great book and I recommend it to, to pretty much anybody who, who who wants to learn about investing, wants to learn about money management, but doesn't want the uh, intricate details, uh, kind of 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 everything that investing has, because uh, sometimes um, the more you know with investing, um, the worse off you do, right? Because it's like. Once you know everything there is to know, then you you learn the next thing, and it's like, oh, this is better than this thing. And uh, in the end, you learn everything or as much as you can, and you realize, oh, the simplest way was the best way. But it, it takes you time to get there, right? It took me a long time to figure out, oh, the Monkey 3 is just simple enough for me, and I'm going to stick, I can stick to it, and I don't need better, right? Like uh, Paul Merriman references that um, article 100. 50 portfolios better than yours and it's like there's always something better than what you have but everything comes and goes right so if you just can keep it simple like he recommends vtsax then perfect uh some people have taken that and put it in vt or 
VT uh, uh, wax, which is a step above VTSAX and total globe, I think that's fine too, right? It's it's still simple enough. You own all 13,000 publicly traded world companies, which is great. And I don't I don't see that as being bad either, but that'd be the book. Now, for someone that maybe is uh, in tune with investing and managing money, I think the book I'd recommend, and I know I'm cheating here, Kevin, you only asked me for one, I think. But I'm going to give you a second one, which is one of the favorite reads I had. This book didn't come out that long ago. I think it was a year, two years ago, maybe, when I read this book. I think it was 2020 when I read it, when it just came out. Um, it was maybe September, October. I don't remember the time frame, but it's The Psychology of Money by uh, Morgan Housel. And that book really touches on um, how it's probably more important to have the psychology part down than the actual investments that you pick, right? Like you can have the best investment portfolio. Uh, let's just say you're invested in Peter Lynch's um, Fidelity Contra Fund making 15 double returns of the market, right? But as soon as that fund slips up, most people are going to sell out. Uh, a good uh, example of that is when ARK Invest was doing really well in 2020, Everybody was buying in, and then when Ark Invest on the flip side, you know, lost seventy percent um, of their money, people are selling out now because the fund's doing bad. And it's like, it doesn't matter that you made three hundred percent in a year if you don't have the right psychology behind uh, your investment strategy, you're going to lose in the end. And a lot of people are losing because they're trading in and out. And it's just a great book all around, and I definitely recommend it for. People that are a little bit more interested in in money, not just on the surface level, but a little bit about kind of um, how how we should be thinking about money and our investments. Uh, That's going to close out this episode number 69. Thank you guys so much for submitting your questions. I always love doing Q&As, whether it's in live streams or in the podcast. It's really fun engaging with everybody and answering your questions. Hopefully you guys found these answers beneficial. If you could do me a favor as you're signing off from the podcast, if you could, uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can leave me a rating and a review, and I'd really appreciate it. Helps push the podcast to other people. Currently ranked 54th in um, investing podcasts, so I'm trying to crack the top 50 uh, of investing podcasts, and I can only do it with your help. So thanks so much, and as always, remember: move obstacles, keep investing. <laughs>